in Acts chapter 12 at the end of it. In Acts chapter 12, we're going to start with verse 20 where we left off last week. If you guys uh, have been tuning in, if you recall last week in Acts chapter 12, we were studying Peter and the ministry that God was doing through his life. As Peter would speak to the Jewish religious leaders at the time, they became so upset with him, so angry. And Herod saw this as a means for opportunity. Herod saw that the Jews hated the disciples and the apostles. So in order that Herod would be able to gain favor from the religious leaders, he put his hand out and had James executed. But Peter in order to gain more favor with the Jews, Herod had him arrested and was planning on most likely killing him. But before Peter was ever killed, we read about his escape. Peter's there in jail. And knowing that he's on death row, God allows him to have the ability to sleep. There was a peace in Peter's heart and in his mind that allowed Peter to fall asleep so much so that when the angel appeared before Peter, he had to kick him on his side to wake him up. So he was in a deep sleep. And when Peter finally woke up and the angel opened the prison doors and Peter was let out, he thought he was dreaming until he was finally outside and realized this wasn't a dream but that this angel had actually led Peter out of these prison gates, opened the doors. And Peter went to his, his brethren. He went to his disciples there in the house and he's knocking on the door where they had been praying and fasting all night for him. And the girl Rhoda went to the door and opened the door and, or before she even opened the door, she just heard Peter's voice and was so shocked that she ran back to the disciples, didn't even open the door for Peter and we said, Peter's outside. And they were like, you're, you're crazy, Rhoda. There's no way that our prayers have been answered by the Lord, even though we've been praying all night and fasting. And they dismissed her for a moment. And then they went to go check themselves. And then sure enough, there was Peter saying, hey, what's going on? And Peter continued to do ministry. He escaped. He escaped the plans that Herod had for him. So Herod, he went down back to Caesarea. Now Herod, his palace that he has there in Caesarea, you could still go visit it to this day. There in Caesarea, it's right there by the coast. This is this beautiful palace, partly covered by the, the, the ocean, all kinds of little crabs and animals now roaming through his palace now. And at this place in Caesarea right there, they've actually found a stone and it, with an inscription on it of a dedication to Pontius Pilate and is there to this day. The actual stone isn't in a museum, but they have the replica there that they, they left there in, in place of it. But what it brings to, to mind is how our, our Bible has history and has 
places that you could go see to this day that are still there, and, and we're reading about them here now in Acts chapter 12, about Herod's palace. So we'll begin with verse 20 of chapter 12, Acts chapter 12, beginning with verse 20. It says this, Now Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. But they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aide, their friend, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food for the king's country. So on a set day, Herod arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne, and gave an oration to them. And the people kept shouting, the voice of a God and not of a man. Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God grew and multiplied. What we have here is this account of Herod's fall. This man who felt he was so mighty. These two nations, Tyre and Sidon, they were seeking Herod's help. They desired to have food and trade continue in their land. And there must have been some sort of contention between these two nations and Herod's nation because they went to him to seek for peace with their leader, Blastus. And then Herod on this particular day went out in royal apparel and he sat on his throne and began to give them this speech. He had his, his rally. Now, as he's there giving this speech, there's a Jewish historian who talks about Herod and the way that oration went down on this particular day. This is a secular historian. He's not even a believer, but he records a, of Herod's speaking. And he says that when he gave this speech, that his apparel was of all silver and of a wonderful contexture. And that going in this very early in the morning into the theater, the silver shone so with the rays of the rising sun that it struck the spectators with terror and admiration. So Herod was all blinged out. He had this bright, shining apparel and he's giving this oration somehow, probably relating to their nations being united as one. And the people were loved hearing this, so they wanted to be friends with Herod. So they began to shout to him the voice of a God and not of a man. And it said that immediately, suddenly this angel strikes him. Now this being eaten by worms is quite fascinating. And there's two ways we could look at this uh, of how it might've happened that this angel could have struck him with this immediate cause of death where suddenly worms just began to eat him inside out and he fell over dead. And it could also be that God and his sovereignty had had some sort of parasite growing in him until finally at this moment, the angel finally said, that's it, boom, made him kill over. But I would imagine that because of the way that the Bible says this immediate striking the words infer that there is some sort of sudden cause. And I wouldn't put it past God's work of just having worms suddenly appear in his stomach out of nowhere. 
Josephus, this historian that I referred to earlier, also documents this and talks about how there was just a, a very disgusting means of his death, uh, of just the smell and the stench that came from him. Now, Herod's sin in this portion of scripture, what we're reading, it's receiving the praises of man and not giving glory to God. You see, in, in ministry and in, in the kingdom of God, there's three things that I am always reminded of not to put my hands on. Number one is the money. Don't put your hands on God's money. Number two is the women. And if you are a woman here, then that would be the men for you. But not to put my hands on, on the women. And number three is God's glory. These are the three things that I'm always reminded of never touching. Leave the money alone. Leave the women and leave the glory. You see, many times as a leader is um, growing, there's that temptation to receive the praises of man because when you are God's instrument, when you are God's vessel, he uses you for good. And a lot of good that comes upon people, they, they begin to look at the instrument. They look at the vessel and they begin to praise the vessel. But it is, it is us as instruments of God to then point them back to God not to receive that, not to get prideful. It would be a, a, as if you had surgery completed on you. And at the end of that surgery, instead of going to the doctor and being like, oh, thank you for that, you went to his scalpel and began to praise and say, thank you, scalpel, for all you have done to heal me. You see, we're just the vessel. We're just the instrument. But it says that in all of this, when Herod was struck dead, with these worms, that God's word spread. I'm sure there were people there who realized that there was a robbing of God's glory going on when Herod was making this speech. So the word of God, when they saw this, it spread because they realized, man, God does not take lightly when people steal his glory. Let's look at verse 25. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. So this is now the beginning of what we're about to watch, Paul's missions trips. I titled the study today, uh, Paul the Missionary. And, and I, I love this idea of, of Paul right now being called Saul and Barnabas beginning to, to journey to do their first missions. And who do they take with them? They take John, whose surname was Mark. Now this Mark is actually Mark, the gospel writer. What's interesting about Mark, the gospel writer, is that he was not one of the 12 disciples. A lot of times people mistake him for probably being one of the 12 disciples because he has a gospel written. But he's actually only about 12 years old uh, around the time when Jesus was crucified. He was just a boy. And in Mark's gospel, he's, what most scholars believe is he mentions himself during Jesus's arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane. It speaks about a boy who is there who is almost taken by the guards 
They grab him by his coat, but he flees. And when he flees, they rip the coat off of him and he runs away naked because he's so scared. And most Bible scholars believe that Mark is actually inserting himself on what he went through at this point of time in his life. And so Mark now is old enough. He saw what they did to Jesus. And he's mature enough that Barnabas and Saul, they want to bring him alongside of them, to pour into him, to allow God to do his work in his life. And so they go on this missions trip. You know, in our lives, we're, we're called to, to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season. And that idea uh, of being ready to preach the word out of season, what it, it doesn't mean that there's a, a season where you shouldn't preach the word. What it means is to be ready even when it gets hard. Out of season means that there, there's a, a time that we are to preach even when it's not popular. There's a time we are to preach when it comes with persecution. And that's what Mark, Barnabas, and Saul are going to find out. Now in chapter 13, let's begin with verse 1. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there was a certain prophets and teachers Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Now we have these men listed here. And what's interesting is that they are men from all types of nations. Barnabas, a Jew, Simeon from Niger, or who was called Niger, meaning that he was actually a a black Jew. Lucius of Cyrene, and Manin, who was there with Herod, the Tetrarch. And you have these people coming from different nations, the Cyrenian. There were some who believed that Simeon was actually the son, or Simeon actually was the man who carried the cross for Jesus. Later on, uh, it might mention his son, Rufus. Now, what are they doing? We, we're seeing them fasting. And I love that as they're fasting, they're seeking the voice of God. The Holy Spirit responds to them. And now I don't believe that, or I don't assume that the Holy Spirit suddenly spoke in an audible voice as they were sitting there in the room where all of a sudden they heard, now separate to me, Barnabas and Saul. I, I don't think that what I do see, because it speaks of these prophets being there, I believe that it was a word given through these prophets that were there. That as they're there, they're fasting, they're praying, that one of them perhaps stood up and used that gift of prophecy to then say that Barnabas and Saul were to be separated for this work. And 
I recognize that God is anointing Barnabas and Saul for a specific duty now. And I love how God does that, that sanctification, that separation where he calls people. You see, God is not going to anoint a building. God is not going to anoint a job or a, a workplace, a school. God is going to anoint people. His Holy Spirit fills people. His Holy Spirit, it lives inside of us. And so as we're walking forward in our walk with God, remember that when you are in God's will, when you are sanctifying yourself, you're separating yourself from sin and you're walking forward in God's will, you're God's man, you're God's woman. And you don't have to be so stressed out about being in the right literal building, but just knowing that when you put your will aside and say, God, I want you to lead me, I want you to guide me, that he's gonna get you to exactly where he wants you to be. There's been times in my life where I've had two choices in front of me of jobs or, or schools and I'm asking and seeking God, God, where, where do you want me to go? And I felt the Holy Spirit speak to me through, through pastors and through his word and told me, why don't you pick Sal? And I was like, whoa, I get, God, you give me free will? Yes, yes, he does. Now, as the Holy Spirit is giving them direct guidelines, we do notice that they're fasting, praying. We see the operation of this laying on of hands. So we still practice all those things to this day. And in verse four, it says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. They had also John as their assistant. Now this is again, John Mark, Mark the gospel writer. And I'm sure he was helping them with all their sound system, carrying it around and taking it wherever they needed uh, as he was being discipled. Now in verse six, it says, now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. Now a few things that we want to mention is that name, Bar-Jesus, this false prophet by this name. Bar, it, it means son. So he was the son uh, of someone named Jesus. Now, Jesus in that time was a very common name. I mean, today it's actually still, Jesus is still pretty common. But back then, they would still name a lot of their sons Jesus. So this was Bar-Jesus. And he was a sorcerer a false prophet. And this is exactly what Jesus warned about to his disciples. He told them in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 24, in verses 11 through 13, he said, many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. 
but he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, this is something that we need to be careful of because as time gets closer to Jesus's return, we're going to see more of these, these false prophets. Satan and his demons, they want to pull away people from truth as much as possible. So Satan is going to go into working overtime, double time with his demons so that people can be taken away from truth. So we need to line everything up with scripture. When we see things that kind of bring a, a red flag in our mind and in our heart from Bible teachers or, or even from worship leaders and leaders, we need to match it up with scripture and test things. Be like the Bereans in the Bible who took what Paul was saying and went and tested it themselves with the scriptures and found what Paul was saying to be true. And I've always been taught from my pastors, and I teach this to you guys as well, don't believe what I say. Go find out for yourself. Go study these things. Go look and research. Google it. (laughs) Thank you. It says in verse 8, But Elymas the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who also is called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Now, again, these, these sorcerers, these uh, men who are there, Elymas is Bar-Jesus. That's the same person. His name is, gets translated into Elymas. And he withstands the gospel that was being given to this governor, this proconsul, Sergius. Now, Elymas, these mediums, these sorcerers, they were used many times in this culture as guides to the leaders. And what's kind of scary is we still have this going on even to this day. I, I don't go too deep into conspiracy theories, but I have seen footage of... of uh, witchcraft and Satan, Satan worship actually being performed by world leaders at times. And they, they have these places that they go, these secret societies, and you hear about them. And they're seeking for power. They're seeking for a false truth to give them power and that they would have their own will be done. And that's always been this case. It started all the way in the beginning of the Bible in Babylon. Now, the sorcerer, Elymas, began to contend with Barnabas and Saul as they're converting Sergius. And I love what we're going to read Paul is allowed to do to him. So notice in verse 9 that Saul, who is also called Paul, Saul was his Hebrew name. And Paul was his Greek name. So I find it quite interesting that since Paul was preaching to the Gentiles as his main call to ministry, that he commonly went by his Greek name, Paul. It says now in in verse 10, look at what Paul says as he looks intently at this sorcerer. In verse 10, Paul says, O fool, 
of all deceit and all fraud. You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Wow. And then the proconsul believed when he saw what he had done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. So this is the power of God in Paul's life. Where because Paul has the heart of a shepherd, he's able to righteously call someone out for their sin. He calls him the son of the devil. Now me reading Paul's words, I, I'm like, wow, like I don't even know if I, <laughs> I would be brave enough to call someone the son of the devil. Um, but Paul was speaking truth to this man in this moment. And we do see Paul's, the reason why he was so upset with this man was because he was pulling away one of his sheep. He was pulling away one of the Lord's sheep from the herd. And Paul, with his heart of a shepherd, he's protecting the sheep from wolves. And as leaders, when we see a wolf trying to pull away one of our, our flock, when we see someone being lured into temptation or being pulled away, we have to step in. There's been seasons in my life where I've seen the wolves come into the ministries that I've been involved with. And it's been upsetting. It's been heartbreaking at times. How the, the ability that Satan has uh, to be sly and to, to use people in the church to pull others away. And so being a shepherd, when that, those instances come up, I need to step in. And, and if someone is a danger to the flock, I'm going to tell them, remove yourself. Or I'm going to have to remove them myself. I'll get my dad. I'll be like, hey, take care of this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and when the proconsul Sergius, he saw that this man went blind, he believed. Now, maybe sometimes we wish we had that power in our life, but uh, I'm sure that would be kind of uh, scary for us to be walking around just blinding people. Uh, people would probably use that in the wrong way. But nonetheless, we do see Paul's heart of a shepherd here. And now in verse 13, now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John departing from them, Return to Jerusalem. Now, this is John, Mark, that it's referring to. So as Paul and Barnabas, they're still continuing on in their missions trip, suddenly, for a reason not mentioned, Mark departs and goes back home. Now, Mark's departure from Paul and Barnabas actually was upsetting to Paul. We know this because later on, on their second mission trip, Barnabas and Paul, they're, they're planning their mission trip and Barnabas says, hey, let's take Mark with us. And Paul says, no, 
We're not going to take Mark with us. He left last time right in the middle of the trip. And he's someone that I, I, I don't see as, as trustworthy. I can't count on him. And this argument that grew between Paul and Barnabas became so sharp and so intense that the two men said, forget it. I'm going to go this way and you could go that way. And Barnabas said, okay, I'm going to take Mark with me. And Paul said, well, I'm going to take Timothy with me. He's a guy I could count on. And Paul and Barnabas had a fight. These two brothers in the Lord had now an argument and a, div- a division amongst themselves. Now, the awesome thing is that in God's sovereignty, God knew that he didn't want just one mission trip, but he wanted two parties for a mission trip. So Paul and Timothy went one way and Barnabas and Mark one another. And now the gospel was going out in multiple directions. So God still, what the devil tried to use to bring division and anger and hostility, God still used for his glory so that more people can hear the gospel. And then we learn from Paul's prison letters as he's writing to Timothy that he asks Timothy, Timothy, as he's there, he's on death row, Paul. He knows it's his last moments. And he writes to Timothy, he says, bring Mark, tell him to bring my coat and tell him to bring the books. And what we see is that as he's asking for Mark to be with him in his last days, that there was a restoration there that took place. That Mark was forgiven by Paul and probably more mature Paul counted him worthy that he knew that that Mark was ready now to to die for Christ, to go all the way. So eventually they, they made up, these two men. But we're not there yet. So let's look at verse 14. It says, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Now notice the, what we see commonly done by the apostles and the disciples is they would first go to the Jews to give them the word. And if the Jews then rejected it, they would then move on to the Gentiles. And it was common practices. It says that they went there on the Sabbath day. They sat down. It was common practice that the teachers at that time would actually go and sit and the students would stand in their places. And then somewhere along the lines, we got those things mixed up and now the teachers stand and the students sit. So, the men, the Jews, they're there and they're saying, look, if you guys have a a word of exhortation, speak on. So in verse 16, then Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwell as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, He brought them out of it. 
Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. Now, as Paul is now about to give this preaching, this sermon to the Jews here, he again takes them back, as is commonly seen by him and Peter, he takes them back to their history. He takes them back to their forefathers, to the Old Testament, reminding them of how God chose the people of Israel to be his chosen people, to represent God to the rest of the world. But the people, they came across much struggle and difficulty. They were enslaved by Egypt. And then when God had sent Moses to deliver them out of that slavery, that bondage, he took them to the wilderness. And what should have been an 11-day journey turned into 40 years. And in this season of 40 years, God the reason why he kept them there was because of their unbelief, because of their idolatry, because of their wicked ways. And God, in that season, it says that he put up with them in the wilderness. There was times when he was ready to wipe all of them out and told Moses, Moses, I'm just gonna start a new nation through you. And Moses interceded on behalf of the people and said, God, please don't, don't kill all the Israelites. I know they're, they're stupid, God, but, but please have mercy on them. And God and his sovereignty knew that Moses was going to pray that and said, you know what, Moses? That's a good prayer. That's what we're going to go with. And so God spared them. But when you look back and read in the Old Testament, those who were taken to the wilderness, only those who were, when they first went out, under the age or 20 years old and younger were the only ones who survived that experience. And the children that they had were the ones who passed to the the promised land. Now, he begins to continue on in their history. In verse 20, after that, he gave them judges for about 40, 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. So God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. Now here again, we have another example of the hardness of the Israelites' hearts. They were a theocracy. They were following after God. They had a prophet with them and they would seek the prophet for advice and counsel. And they were living in a theocracy, but eventually they said, you know what? We want a human king like the other nations do. We want to follow after a man that we can see, a man that we can touch. And this is not what God wanted for them. But God, knowing their hardness of their hearts, said, okay, fine, I'm going to give you a king. So he said, all right, Saul, you're going to lead the nation. And Samuel anointed Saul. It says in verse 22, and when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king to whom he also gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. 
Now, the reason why God had to remove Saul was Saul was given the blessing of leading the people. God had anointed him and given him gifts and abilities to lead. But Saul was disobedient. He did not obey the Lord fully and completely. There, he had partial obedience. And to be partially obedient is to be disobedient. There would be times when Saul was ordered to go out and to wipe out a nation, but he would, instead of wiping out the entire nation, keep the king alive and the best of their flocks and herds. And he did, did this. And when seasons when he would come across trials, instead of waiting for Samuel the prophet to come to him, he would take that place as priest and sacrifice animals when he wasn't supposed to. And because of all these things, God said, you know what, Saul, you're not obedient to me. I'm going to remove the kingdom from you and I'm going to give it to someone, a man after my own heart. Referring to David. Now, when we think of David, we think, man, David, yeah, he was a man after God's own heart, but he was also a man with some of the worst mistakes ever recorded in the Bible. His sin with Bathsheba of adultery, the murder of her husband Uriah, and also how he numbered the people and God had sent an angel to to wipe them out in a plague where 70,000 people, Israelites, died. These were the mistakes that David made, uh, huge mistakes. But one thing that we see in David's life is that he was quick to repent. He was quick to ask God for forgiveness, to try to change his ways, not, not to just stop in his sin, but to turn around and go the other way. And this is what God loved about David. This is why David was called a man after my own heart. And so far as Paul is preaching this gospel, this message to these people, he's beginning with showing them this main theme. That it's God's will that needs to be completed, not our own. The death to self is one of the hardest callings that a Christian has. Because in order to follow after Christ, he calls us to come and die. So that when we're faced with the decision of obeying God or or obeying what we want to do, we have to spiritually die. And that death, it comes sometimes with pain. It comes with in the big scheme of things, with, with a joy. Because when you, when you obey God, there is a joy that can pass all understanding. Meaning that you would look at a, somebody's situation and think, man, they just lost someone so close to them. Man, they just let somebody be so mean to them yet they're still filled with that peace, that contentment in their life because they obeyed God rather than doing what they wanted to do.
And it's going to be a struggle in our lives for the rest of our lives to say, okay, I'm not going to strive, but God, I'm going to submit to you. And we can feel it when we're striving. Maybe it's uh, not right away, but suddenly we begin to realize that there is this struggle that is happening internally in our minds and our hearts where we're fighting against the will of the Lord. We should be praying that God would give us discernment to, to fill that sooner rather than later, where we're not so far away from God's will. And I myself, in those moments when you finally give up and surrender, you just think, man, like, why was I striving so hard? Why didn't I just give up sooner? Why didn't I just let go? But when you do, God brings peace. And it's that peace that allows us to move forward. Maybe we're scared right now to move forward. Maybe there's things that we're not sure what to do as a believer, as a Christian. But what I love about our God is he allows us to, to learn, to mature. That he doesn't always give us the one, two, three instructions sometimes. Maybe he does that at first in the beginning, but then as we grow and mature, he gives us harder tests. He allows us to, to begin to, to have that discernment, that maturity, where we learn, oh, the last time I did that, it just put me in a black, bad place. I'm not gonna go down that road again. And we grow in this. And sometimes you're running, you're running your race it's a jog, more like, more like a jog, because <laughs> it's a long one. And you hit a wall. Sometimes that scares us when we hit that wall, where everything stops, where we fail, where we mess up. And it, then we, all of a sudden we're like, oh, well, we don't want to move forward anymore because we don't want to make the mistake. But Jesus is like, no, come on, get up. Like, well, I'm going to bring you this way now. I'm going to bring you this way now. And as you're moving forward, God is continually just allowing you to grow and to mature and to learn all these things. And this is part of, of abiding with God, of being in his will. And it's something that we grow in. You know, maybe we're, we're struggling with being in a, in a trial and in, in a depression or Maybe we're, we're thinking too much on the things that we, we don't have. But when you take a step back, if you hate your, your life, then maybe you should let that life die. And by letting that life die, what you are then going to receive is the new life that Christ gives you. And we have to ask him for that. Now, when God gives us that new life, he's going to give us those gifts. It doesn't mean that everything stops. He has a calling for your life. He has a plan for your life. And he wants to do wonderful and mighty things through you. So may we continually look to Jesus. He was there in the garden praying God 
if there's any way that this can be completed other than me going to the cross, please let that happen. He said, none less not my will, but your will be done. And this is what our prayer needs to be. So this week, what we're going to do is we're going to take communion this morning. And as we take communion, I, I, before we take communion, I'm going to do a song of worship. And I encourage us to take inventory on whose will is being performed in your life. Is it your own will? Is it God's will? Are we living out that mission trip that God has given us? You, know, you don't have to go to across the world in order to fulfill that call. Sometimes that mission field is our family. Sometimes that mission field is our work, our, our friends, our, our, our coworkers. And in all of this, we have to ask the Holy Spirit to fill us, to call us to this, to separate us like he did Barnabas and Saul for the work. So with that being said, we're going to have a time of, of communion, as I said. And as I play this song, just pray in your heart. If there's things in your, your heart and in your mind that you want to give to the Lord, give them to him. If there's things in our, our heart and our mind that we need to uh, be cleansed of, let that be done. Ask God for forgiveness and allow re his repentance to fill your life.